We um, talked last week about sin, and uh, all of us got very, very uncomfortable. You, uh, you can't uh, talk about sin without feeling condemned, because uh, the malady afflicts us all. We're all uh, infected to some degree with, uh, with what the scripture describes as sin. It's almost as though all of us have contracted this uh, new dreadful disease, AIDS, for which there is no known cure and uh, which is, uh, is terminal. Um, we, we all share in common what the New Testament describes as a sinful disposition. And uh, the, the problem is not merely that we're sinful in the things that we do. The, uh, as we saw last week, the, the problem is much more profound than that. It's that we're part of what C.S. Lewis once described as the grand rebellion. We've all turned our backs on God, as Isaiah puts it. We are like sheep that have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. We wandered off on our own course, and, and now we're misaligned. We have, as Paul puts it in Romans 3, missed the beauty of God's plan. We're like uh, passengers on an ocean-going vessel playing wicked games on board ship but not realizing that the real problem is that the ship is off course and it's headed into the ice fields of the North Atlantic and before long we'll uh, strike an iceberg and, and sink. And uh, people on board ship, the uh, pursers and the, the uh, captain and the officers and the recreation directors are trying to suppress evil on the ship while they're playing their, their wicked games and gambling away company money and, and being unfaithful to their wives and those sorts of things, pronouncing that 10 o'clock is curfew and everybody has to be in their cabins at 10 o'clock and trying to keep, keep everything calm and peaceful, but not realizing that the whole thing is off course. And that's what the New Testament reveals about the human race. We are misaligned. That's our problem. And we're headed toward certain destruction. There's no way out unless someone saves us. Now, uh, the problem really is that people do not realize the depth of the problem. They know something's wrong, but they don't know what it is. They know that their lives are dreary and monotonous and empty, and, and uh, they know that their marriages need to be saved or they need to be saved from some habit that, uh, that has enslaved them. But uh, they, don't, they don't know what the real problem is or how to be delivered. They're very much like the Philippian jailer that uh, Luke tells us about in the book of Acts. You know the story. Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, and uh, they were singing hymns at night. And an earthquake occurred and shook the, shook the jail down. And the Roman jailer ran up to Paul and Silas and said, Sirs! What must I do to be saved? Now, don't read that as though he understood the entire plan of salvation and he wanted to know how to be spiritually saved. That wasn't the question that was on his mind. In those days, uh, Roman uh, soldiers were given responsibility for prisoners, and if they lost their prisoner, if their prisoner escaped, they had to take his place. And this Roman soldier saw that his career, at the very least, was uh, over, and it might even be his life that was at uh, that was uh, in the balance. And uh, his question was, Sirs, how, what can, can save me from this dreadful fate? And Peter seizes this, or Paul seizes this opportunity and says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You see, he pointed him on 
to the greater and more, more profound solution to, uh, to his problem. And that's what we learn from Scripture, the, the nature, the profound nature of the salvation that, that Christ has wrought for us. We can't save ourselves. No amount of, uh, of reformation or self-effort will get the job done. Someone has to do it for us. The crisis is total, as someone once put it. We, someone has to deliver us. Now, the, the best illustration of that salvation is found in the Old Testament. If you want to see a, a beautiful uh, visual aid of salvation, it's found in, in Israel's liturgy, in its worship. Now, here's what happened. Uh, if you woke up some morning with a guilty conscience, you would uh, take a small bull uh, out of your herd or uh, a goat or a small lamb from your flock. Or if you were poverty-stricken, you'd take a brace of pigeons or, or doves uh, down to the tabernacle or the, or the temple, as that was later built, and present yourself before the priest. And uh, you would lay your hands on the head of that animal, or on the bird, and as the, as the text puts it, lean your weight on his head. You would transfer your weight onto the animal and confess your sins. And then, uh, it's a little uncertain, but either you or the priest would sacrifice the animal, cut its throat, and sacrifice it on an altar, either in part or the whole animal would be consumed in, in the sacrifice. And uh, that's the way that provision was made for sin, except that was not the real provision. That was just a picture. That's all. It was a visual aid of what was going on behind the scenes. Now, no Jew was ever saved on the basis of that sacrifice. His guilt was not taken away because he sacrificed an animal. That animal was a picture of a greater sacrifice, which was yet future in history, but in terms of the way God looked at things, was already accomplished. Men and women in Israel's day were saved on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, just as, as you are. And uh, that sacrifice was, was symbolized through this offering. Now, when Jesus came and John the Baptist pointed him out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they understood exactly what he was talking about. This is the one who would take the place of the Lamb. In effect, we would lay our hands on Jesus' head, lean all of our weight on him, transfer our sins to him, and he would take that, that sin up to the cross, and he would die for it, and we would be released from guilt. Now, the book that explains best the pictures is the book of Hebrews. Now, will you turn with me, please, to that book? Hebrews chapter 10. I wish I could tell you who wrote the book of Hebrews. I haven't the foggiest idea. Uh, the book is anonymous. Uh, I know who did not write it. The Apostle Paul did not. Of that I am absolutely certain. Uh, in chapter 2, the, uh, the writer says, uh, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be declared by him, that is Christ, and then was confirmed unto us who heard them. In other words, uh, the apostles told us the story of, of the gospel. Now, that's something Paul would never say. The, the whole book of Galatians was written primarily to announce that no one had taught the apostle Paul anything except the Lord Jesus. He got his information directly from him and not from the apostles. 
So I'm quite certain that the apostle didn't write it. It was some second generation Christian, some disciple of one of the apostles who, who was unnamed, but to, who wrote with the authority of the apostles because apparently like the Gospel of Mark or, or the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts were written by someone who wrote under an apostle's authority. We do know the purpose of the book. The reason it was written was uh, something like this. Um, it was written to Jewish Christians. Uh, as you know, the early church was almost totally Jewish in the beginning. Very few Gentiles. Uh, it was written probably very early, soon after Pentecost, before 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, and uh, the references to the temple throughout the book are in the present tense, as though it's, all, it's existing and the, and the worship in the temple is still uh, transpiring. And so uh, it must have been before 70 A.D. So sometime in there between, uh, say, 32 A.D. and 70 A.D., this book was written, and it was written to Jewish uh, Christians who were thinking about going back to Judaism. They were getting a lot of pressure. Uh, they lived in very tight-knit Jewish communities, and uh, many of these Jews became Christians, and they were being ostracized and spoken against, and their shops were boycotted, and, and they were getting very uncomfortable. The, the author says, You have not yet suffered unto blood. That is, you haven't lost your lives yet. So the persecution here is not, is not imperial persecution. It wasn't the Roman Empire persecuting them. It was their friends who were giving them a hard time because they had become Christians. And they were thinking, well, it probably is not worth it. Let's go back to the temple. And let's take the pressure off. And, and the, the purpose of the book is to establish that if you do that, you're giving up the reality and you're going back to the pictures. Now, when I was uh, in the service, I was stationed in Barstow. Uh, Barstow is not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's very close. <clears throat> right in the middle of the great American desert. And uh, I was engaged at the time, and Carolyn was in Dallas, Texas, and I didn't get to see her very often, but I had a picture of her on my uh, locker uh, door. And often when I was writing her letters, I would open up the locker door, and I would lie in my sack, and I would uh, I'd think about her while I wrote. Or if I was lonely, I would just uh, sit there and look, look at her picture. Uh, on August the 24th, 1957, uh, I changed all that. I gave up the pictures, and I got the real thing. <laughs> that, that's when we were married. And um, I put all my pictures away. I put them in my billfold, and occasionally I'd bring them out to show somebody what Carolyn looked like. But I hardly ever looked at them again. I didn't have to. I had the real thing there. And how silly it would be of me if, if after a couple of months of marriage, I decided that marriage was a little bit difficult, and uh, I would go back to the pictures. And I'd get the pictures out, and I'd talk to the pictures. Oh, no, that, that, that would be absurd, you see. Not when you have the real thing. Now, that's what was happening. These Jewish Christians were thinking it would be better to go back to the, to the old system, the old covenant. And the, the, the writer of the book says, no, you're going back to the pictures. You're giving up the real thing. There's no salvation there. The salvation is here. That's just a picture of the salvation that, that Christ, uh, Christ brought about. That's why in 10.1, the writer says, for the law, all of you have it? You following me? Hebrews 10.1. For the law, that is that uh, portion of the law that dealt with their liturgy and worship, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, 
and not the very realities of things can never by the same sacrifice year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near to worship. See what he's saying? The things that occur every day in the temple, the sacrifices offered by the priests are just shadows. And you know what a shadow is. Everybody has one. I have a little shadow that goes in and out with me. And what can be the use of it is more than I can see. The shadows don't do much for you. They can't make you perfect, he says. They can't mature you. Can't deal with the guilt of the past. Can't give you power for the present. Can't give you hope for the future. Can't do anything for you. It's such a shadow, he says, a picture. Can never make you perfect. Otherwise, he says, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? The very repetitive nature of their worship shows that they didn't make a complete salvation. You didn't offer your little lamb and then walk away and say, well, I'm glad I have, have completed that one once and for all, never have to go back again. No. No, you had to keep coming back day after day because the consciousness of sin would... Would return, and as a matter of fact, he says it even reminds you of sin. In those sacrifices, verse 3, there is annual reminder of sins, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Any serious thinking person would come to the conclusion that, that the mere death of an animal cannot take away sin. There has to be a human sacrifice. That's why, as Malcolm Muggeridge points out, uh, the, the pagan who practices whole human sacrifice or who, who bows before a pagan altar is really much closer to the truth than Albert Einstein. He understands the nature of sin, the heinous, terrible nature of sin. That sin demands the death of the sinner. Blood has to be shed. And ultimately, it's human blood that has to be shed to make atonement for sin. It's impossible. You know that. No animal can take away sin. There had to be a greater sacrifice. And in five and following, he describes that sacrifice. Therefore, that's an inference inference gained from his conclusion that the law was inadequate. Therefore, when he, that's Christ, the pronoun refers back to verse 28 of chapter 9. Therefore, when he, Messiah, comes into the world, he says, and the author of of Hebrews puts into his mouth the words that King David, the poet of Judah, originally penned in Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Do you see what he's saying? In the Old Testament, though the law prescribed certain sacrifices and, and offerings, that was not God's ultimate intention. It's not his final plan. It was just a picture. But those sacrifices could never take away sin. The only thing that would take away sin was a body, a human body, that had been prepared for our Lord. It's the incarnation. It's God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, offering up his life. And uh, the body that was prepared for him was was formed in in Mary's womb. And then she gave birth to our Lord Jesus, and he grew up and kept that body pure and then made it available on our behalf. In verse 6, he continues the quotation, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you take no pleasure, not in any ultimate sense, though it was a, it was a temporary 
arrangement. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me. That is, the entire Old Testament speaks of this one who will come and, and do the will of God. This is the servant of the Lord who comes to make his body available to God. Behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. You, you, you know what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our Lord did not want to die. Three times he asked to be spared. And uh, finally, he, he came to the conclusion that there was no other way. And so he submitted to the Father's will. At first he said, if it's your will that I bypass the cross, then, then let it be. But it was not the Father's will for him to, to, to bypass the cross. As Isaiah puts it, it was the will of the Father to bruise him. And so having come to that conclusion, he submitted to his will. Not my will, but yours be done. And as the writer goes on to say in verse 8, after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, that is, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He abolishes the old in order to establish the new, and the new order is established by his willing submission to death. And by this will, in verse 10, that is, by his willingness to die, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The uh, writer of Hebrews uses the word sanctification the way Paul uses justification in his letters. He means by that term to be made holy, to be declared righteous. And so uh, when, he, when he writes... In verse 5, by his will we have been sanctified, he means by Christ's death we have been justified, as the, as the Apostle Paul teaches us. And the thing I want you to note, the most important thing of all, is that it is once for all. He did not need to be sacrificed over and over again. It happened once. And the result is that you and I are, are made holy. This is what theologians describe as a substitutionary, vicarious atonement. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. Paul puts it precisely like that. He says, he, Jesus, was made sin for us, this one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Such a deal we get. We, we take our sin... And we put it on his shoulders, and he takes it up to the cross and dies on our behalf, and we get his righteousness imparted to us. As, as Isaiah put it, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's our part. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. One of the most vivid memories of my childhood was the time when... when uh, President Truman was almost assassinated. That may be long before some of you can remember. Uh, I, Pre President Truman was taking a nap in the Blair House. And a group of desperate men broke in through the front door and were, were shot before they could get into uh, the, play, the room where the president was napping. 
But in the exchange of gunfire, one of the Secret Service agents commissioned to protect the president was killed. And I'll never forget Truman's words. He said, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing to know that someone has given up their life so that you can live. I will never forget this man. Now, that's what the gospel tells us. That's what Jesus did. He gave up his life for you and me. This exchange was made, and it was once for all. And don't ever let anybody tell you that you have to add something to it. Cults differ from Orthodox Christianity in every case because they, they teach that you need to add something to salvation. Some good work, some activity, some ritual, some liturgy. But what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that there is nothing you can add to the salvation that our Lord provided for us. You have been sanctified, you have been made holy once for all by the death of Christ. Now, uh, the first ten verses of chapter 10 describe the inadequacy of the old covenant and the sufficiency of the new in terms of the sacrifice. We have a better sacrifice now since Christ has made one offering for sin. The verses that follow in 11 through 18 uh, add to the argument. He describes in these verses the inadequacy of the old priesthood and the sufficiency of the new priesthood, the greater, more powerful priesthood that we have in Christ. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily, day after day, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. As far as we know, the priests offered sacrifices 24 hours a day. They were there in, in several courses during the, during the day. And uh, they never sat down. Several commentators have observed that there were no chairs in the temple or the tabernacle. Priests never sat down. They were always making atonement for sin. But uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He had what it took to get the job done. So we have a better sacrificer as well as a better sacrifice. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Waiting until his sovereignty becomes, uh, is exerted universally. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Just, that's just a summary statement of the sufficiency and the finality and the perfection of Christ's sacrifice. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are, who are being made holy. That means uh, the sins of your past life have been covered and forgiven. All time, that's the past. The, 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 the terrible, dreadful things that you've done with your body and, and with your mind in the past have been forgiven for all time. And the things that you will do tomorrow and the next day have been forgiven. Because he says, by one offering, we've been perfected for all time. And then he goes on to show how the Old Testament corroborates that, that statement. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. That's his way of saying scripture witnesses to this. 
For after saying, and then he quotes Jeremiah, the exilic and post-exilic prophet who had written some four to five hundred years before he, uh, this quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them, that is with Israel, and then God's people, it's applied to the church, to us. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and in their minds will write them. He's simply quoting the first portion of Jeremiah's uh, statement. He then says, And their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. For verse 18 to be true, a sacrifice for all time had to occur. Jeremiah predicts that the time is coming when God would no longer remember our sins or our evil deeds. And uh, the writer of of Hebrews adduces this argument and uh, says, in effect, that the Old Testament anticipated this. Since God promised that there would be a time that God would forgive all of our sins, there must be a sacrifice yet to come that would take care of all of our sins. And then he concludes in verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, that is, sins and lawless acts, there is no longer any offering for sin. The whole weight of the argument of the book of Hebrews rests on on verse 18. Do you see what he's saying? If God has forgiven our sins and our lawless deeds, then there's no need for a sacrifice. The worship that's being transacted right now in the temple, if if you go out of your house and you look up the street and you see the priests at work in the temple, it's, it's to no avail. It's empty. It's meaningless. You might as well shut the doors and let the temple gather dust. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. There's no need for it, you see. I, we were digging around in the back of the church here the other day, and uh, we, we found the blueprints to this building. And uh, it was sort of interesting to look at them and, and remember all the agony that Steve Newman and Terry Pepe went through in trying to get this building built. But... Uh, Imagine if, if our architect over in Portland were still drawing blueprints of this building. And every week or so, we'd get a blueprint, and we'd pour over it and decide what we're going to do with this uh, building, and we'd still get bills from the architect for the work that's being done. It would be absurd. There's no need for the blueprint. There's no need for the plan, for the picture. We have the reality. We're enjoying it. We're sitting in it. And that's what the author is saying. Temple's passé. It doesn't have any useful function any longer. It's an anachronism. It's like a dinosaur. Well, just shut the doors and forget it because there remains no more sacrifice for sin. And to punctuate this principle, a few years later, Titus, the Roman uh, general with his legions, marched through Jerusalem and burned the city to the ground. And that was the end of worship in the temple. And, of course, there, there is no longer any sacrifice in Judaism. They worship in synagogues, but there is no animal sacrifice. Very, very pointed way. Very graphic way of saying it. It's over. It's over. No need for it. Because the perfect sacrifice has been rendered. Now he concludes in verses 19 through 25, and this is really the conclusion to his book, with two summary statements and then three exhortations. Since, therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, which incidentally would be a frightening idea to a Jew. To be able to walk right into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, was 
the sort of thing that no one did under penalty of death. Only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could walk into God's presence in, in, in the holy place, the most holy place. But uh, when Jesus died, the, the temple that, that separated the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the dwelling place of God, and the holy place in, in, the, in the, uh, the vestibule, the front of the tabernacle or the temple, was torn from top to bottom as a way of symbolizing that, that everyone now had access to God. They could walk boldly right into the presence of God. And so he, he concludes, since we have that sort of confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way in contrast to the old and dead way represented by, uh, by the worship of Israel. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The way is his flesh which was offered for us, which made it possible for us to barge right into God's presence. We have confidence, he says, because of the death of Christ. You can see what he's doing. He's summarizing what he said in 10, 1 through 10. Then he summarizes in verse 21 what he has said in 11 through 18. And since we have a great, a powerful priest over the house of God, then three exhortations. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. How, how did you sleep last night? Did you sleep well? Or did you remember the things in your past? Uh, psychiatrists, psychologists tell us that uh, the, the number one mental and emotional problem in the world today is a guilty conscience. And the author of Hebrews tells us that the answer to a guilty conscience is the sacrifice that Christ made. Not something I do. Not some effort on my part to atone for those sins to try to repress the guilt or to do something good to, to once for all assuage that, that sense of guilt and, and, and put it away. No, no, it's that we've been washed. Our hearts have been sprinkled and we've been cleansed from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water, not, not literally but symbolically. The priests used to sprinkle blood on their vestments before they would go in to offer sacrifice and they would wash their bodies as a way of symbolizing their purity. And, and the writer says, that's for real. It's no longer a picture. You're like a priest who's been washed in mind and body. doesn't matter what you've thought with your mind or done with your body. You've been cleansed. Not because you're worthy of it. Not because you've done anything to deserve it. But because Christ did it for you. And so you don't need to feel guilty over the past. Uh, remember two years ago when we had that, that uh, violent storm in the wintertime and it snowed four or five inches one night? I, I came out the next morning and discovered that my trash cans, it was on Monday morning, my trash cans had blown clear down the block and there was about three or four feet of snow on the ground and they were strewn all over the place. And I was trying to gather all this stuff up and the, the trash had been collected, but the trash cans had been blown around. So I got everything together. We have three large trash cans and the lids and collected all of, all of this equipment, put it back in the garage. The next morning, I had an early morning breakfast to attend, and I got up before daylight. But it was one of those bright, moonlit lit mornings 
when you could see everything, and there, as I say, there's about three or four feet of snow on the ground. And I looked uh, into the front yard, and I saw one of those trash can lids out there. And I thought, that's odd. I know I put that thing away. And I, and I walked over to where the trash can lid was and stooped over to pick it up and, and felt grass. And then I realized what had happened. That's where the trash can lid had been. And it had snowed on the top of the lid and all around it, but protected a, a spot that was the identical size of the trash can lid where the grass was. I thought it was a lid, but the lid was gone. There's nothing but a memory of the lid. And you won't believe this, but the next morning I got up for the men's Wednesday morning Bible study and looked out and I thought, that lid is still there. <laughs> but uh, it snowed again in a couple of days and, and the uh, black hole was filled up and, uh, and I forgot all about it. Now that's the way it is with sin. That's precisely what, the way we act with regard to past sin. We think back over our past and we see garbage can lids. And we, we start trying to gather them up and we go back and discover that our Lord has already taken them away. And the only thing that's left is the memory, the black hole. And uh, if, if we stop remembering, if we keep trying to go back and pick them up after a while, even the memories fade. Our tendency is to, to go back and remind ourselves. And that, by the way, is one of the favorite tricks of our, of our enemy, is to remind you and me of all the vile and and dreadful things that we've done, the hurtful things we've done to our marriage partners and to our friends and, and the violence that, that we have done to others. And uh, we go back to pick it up and we discover that it's all gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And that's why he says, let's, uh, let's draw near to worship. Keep coming again and again, present tense verb. Keep coming back to the Lord. Keep drawing on his strength. Keep walking into his presence. Never feel that he's mad at you. He's frowning at you. He's upset because of something you've done in the past. Let's draw near with a genuine heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And secondly, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The first admonition has to do with the past, the guilt of the past. This has to do with the future. He says, keep, keep looking on. Remember the hope that we have. He who promised is faithful. Now, what has he promised? Well, two things. One of these days, he's going to come back and he's going to set our old sin-marred uh, world straight. But in the meantime, he's going to give you and me whatever we need to cope with our world. As I've said over and over again, Scripture never promises that everything is going to go our way. Circumstances may very often be adverse. But what he does promise is his sufficiency for any circumstance. One of my pet peeves is the success theology teaching that if, if you follow Christ, you will never get sick, your children will never go wrong, your marriages will always work out, uh, your life will be untroubled, and it simply is not true. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And if you have an argument about this world, take it up with him. He's the one that said that. This world lies in the lap of the wicked one. He tells us, Satan has the world in his lap. And therefore, circumstances are going to be adverse. But, he says, I have overcome the world. Now, he doesn't mean he's going to set everything right now. 
But he's going to give us his sufficiency, his adequacy to face whatever we have to face. And that gives us hope. I don't get up tomorrow morning in despair that I'll not have what it takes to face whatever I have to face. He says, let's have hope. Remember that the one who has promised us is faithful. That's the future and the present. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is the day of Christ's coming. We can expect life to get even more grim as we get closer to that day. Evil will be even more sinister and insidious and hard to, uh, hard to spot. It be difficult to know the difference between good and evil, much more subtle. And therefore, as that day approaches, we need to assemble to encourage one another to love and good deeds. That's, that's what a church meeting is all about. That's why we meet here, to encourage one another. Not to be lashed, but to be comforted. To, be, to have the great truths of Scripture explained so that we have hope for the future. And freedom from the guilt of the past. Um... I heard a story once about a little boy who saw a couple of plaques at the back of the church. You may have told this story before. It's one of my favorite stories. And uh, it was a list of the young men and women that had been killed in the, in the wars that had come from that, in various wars that had come from that church, members of that church. And the little boy says to his father, what, what's that? And his father said, well, those are the, the men and women that, were, that died in the service. And his little boy said... The little boy said, what service, Dad, the morning service or the evening service? <laughs> and unfortunately, that's what so often happens when we, when we meet together. And we're, we're killed. But, but the writer of Hebrews says, no, no. Now, when you get together, encourage each other, stimulate one another to love and good works. That's the name of the game. That's the real mark of a Christian. It, it, it's, it's not that we serve on committees and we're busy doing church things and we play church, play church games. It's, it's that we are becoming more loving people, more like our Lord Jesus in character. And uh, so he says, as for the present, remember that you have all the resources of Christ. It will make it possible for you to go out and be loving people, displaying everywhere the invisible character of, of Christ. And all the more, he says... As you see the day drawing near. Now that's, that's what it took. It took the Son of God to save us. That's why I say, I say sin is such a radical thing, such a profound thing. The problem with us as a human race is not that we need more education. Maybe we do, but that's not going to save us. It, it, it's not that we need better breeding, you know, that we come from the wrong side of the tracks or our heredity is wrong. Uh, or our environment is bad. Those may be problems. They need to be rectified. But that's not what's going to save us. Nor is it that we simply have, had enough, have not had enough time to evolve fully. That, that's, that's not the answer. The answer is that we need a Savior. Someone who could change us radically. Give us a new birth. I, I have uh, always loved this description of C.S. Lewis of salvation. He says, when Jesus said, be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. 
It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are all like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. You must be hatched or go bad. And that's what we need. We need to be hatched. We need a new life. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. The old the new has come. Let's pray. Father, again, how richly the scriptures reward us. We, uh, we turn from the wisdom, that uh, the so-called wisdom that we derive from the world around us and from our own unsatisfied yearnings and longings. And we find here a source of, of strength and life that is incomparable. We thank you for the salvation that, that you brought about. One which is not dependent upon our, our works or our worth or our value or our past or our heredity or our upbringing or any other factor that simply is based upon your grace and your love for us and your willingness to be sacrificed on our behalf. And as, as the Apostle tells us, the only reasonable act of worship, the only logical response to this revelation is to yield our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. We want you to be our Savior and our Lord and to, to recreate our lives. Thank you for freeing us from the, from the guilt of the past. Thank you for giving us hope for the future. And thank you for giving us power to live life today as we long to live it and as you've called us to live. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.